Happy, happy new year, same 24 hours podcast. Listeners, it's an amazing 2020 already, and I hope you all are feeling great on New Year's Day. I know many of you are not, which is why I am bringing you just the perfect remedy for your New Year's Day, and that is the amazing Pilar Gerasimo. She is an award-winning health journalist, but you probably know her for her Experience Life magazine. She was a founding editor, and she also has a podcast called The Living Experiment, which is a top podcast with Dallas Hartwig, who is the co-founder of Whole30. And I have loved her podcast for years and was so honored when she agreed to be my New Year's Day guest. So hooray. Her new book, The Healthy Deviant, A Rule Breaker's Guide to Being Healthy in an Unhealthy World, is Available now for pre-order and comes out next week, so you don't want to miss out. I was so thrilled to not only speak to her, but to hear about the, the topic of this book. You're going to love it. So, Happy New Year. Welcome to it. We're It's a year of being healthy deviants, <laughs> and it's definitely, most definitely, a year of no nonsense. So, my book is out. The last uh, podcast I did was about publication day, so I'm two weeks in now. Everything is going amazingly well. I'm a number one bestseller on Amazon and in many categories, women's health, general women's health, and even self-esteem. I'm bopping around and the book's available in Target nationwide. And so it's been a pretty awesome start for me. And I know you all are going to really enjoy this episode with Pilar. So I hope it goes great. I hope that your new year is set up to be everything that you're hoping but if it's not, we can do better. There's always an opportunity to change exactly what you want to change. So let's look at 2020 as opportunity to move forward in the direction that we want to go. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, and welcome to the Same 24 Hours podcast. I'm Meredith Atwood, author of the book, The Year of No Nonsense. I'm a former attorney turned writer, speaker, and Ironman triathlete. Although right now, all I really like to do is lift weights. We all have the same 24 hours, but it's what we do in those hours that leads to our greatest health, happiness, and success. It's my goal to crack the code on a life of less nonsense so we can all make the most of our 24 hours. So let's get started. Today's right. guest is Pilar Gerasimo, correct? <laughs> Did I get it wrong again? Yeah. No, Gerasimo, that's right. I always tell people it's like Seymour, but with a Jera on the front. So, so Gerasimo. I asked you how to pronounce it, and then I said it wrong. See, that's the kind of like genius I am. So anyway, thank you for being here. It's <laughs> my pleasure. So let's talk quickly, like at first, about your new book, because I'm very excited about this. It keeps popping up on Amazon for me to buy, and I'm going to buy it as soon as I get off the phone because I know it's coming out for you soon. And pre-orders are super important because I just did this song and dance for my own book. But Healthy Deviant, Healthy Deviant, The Rule Breaker's Guide to Being Healthy yes. in an Unhealthy World. So let's talk about this. Okay, we will talk about it. And then I also just want to say congratulations on your book because that I've seen popping up on Amazon too. And it's always <laughs> so fun to like talk to someone else who's just been through the same crazy rodeo of getting yes. a book out. I feel like it's been, you know, five years of work just getting yes. it really together and probably 
to a decade of thinking about it. So, and this is the crazy yeah. time because like one week you can do, you know, it's crazy making because it's one week and you, you just, you can't do anything. <laughs> it's like, you need to do stuff, but what can you do? It's like, buy my book. Ah, oh, so I know how you feel right now. That's I all I'll say. <laughs> it's great. It's, well, you know, I will say that there's something, um, the, so what's been happening for me as the book, uh, after I got it submitted in this, probably in the spring originally, I think it was May, um, it's been this kind of gathering sense of like, oh my goodness, this is going to go out into the world. People, regular humans are going to open this book and read it. And, you know, reflecting on what I'd originally intended when I set out to write it in the first place and measuring in my own mind, you know, I guess my hope of what the book will do for folks who read it um, and the potential that it'll land really differently for some people and not others. I mean, if you write a book that's titled The Healthy Deviant, you know that it's not for everyone <laughs> to begin <Right>. with. <laughs> but I, what I've been finding as advanced readers um, have been giving me feedback is that it is really connecting with health seekers in the way that I had originally hoped and intended. And so I'm, no matter what happens to the book sales, I feel like I have achieved what I wanted to with the book, which is changing some lives and changing some minds and <clears throat> reframing the real challenge of what it means to try to be a healthy person in today's world which is so much more predominantly unhealthy and unhappy. Uh, and, you know, I feel ultimately if there's anything that I have been called to do with the past two decades of my career, it's to make that challenge easier for people and help them approach it with more self-compassion and patience and, you know, enthusiasm. I want it to feel better than it does for most people. So I, I'm really grateful for the chance to talk about it with you because I know you're a change agent and someone who's been advocating for the same kinds of healthy changes and, and wanting to encourage people to take those first steps, which are sometimes the most difficult. Right. And I think it's so interesting. You said, you know, with a title like The Healthy healthy Deviant, this book is not for everyone. I keep telling the same, I keep saying the same thing about my book. I'm like, it's, you know, it's not going to be for everyone. But when you get it out into the world and you know that the book is exactly what you intended and it's also received well, I feel like I can finally breathe a little <laughs> because it's been two weeks and I'm like, okay, <laughs> yeah. I've gotten my fair share of other, you know, not so great reviews, but they're kind of in the shadows right now. But um, yeah, when you finish that project and and say this, this is what I intended. That's, that's a great feeling. So congratulations on getting there because it could be Thank much you. worse, right? <laughs> say oh no I missed yeah <laughs> yeah you know it's funny when I was talking to Dallas my podcast partner so I have a podcast called the living experiment that I co-host with Dallas Hartwig and Dallas is a two times New York Times best-selling author of the whole 30 and it starts with food and he has a new book coming out called The Four Season Solution. The two of us have been working on our books at the same time. And in the year that we took off from the podcast to finish our books, he witnessed me going through the cycle of, you know, what I wanted the book to be versus what the publisher wanted it to be. And there really is a machine that is set up to produce books for the health and fitness industry that start to look and sound a lot alike. You know, they have recipes, they have workouts, they have diets, they have miracle programs that are going to, you know, reform you in some magical way and solve all of your problems. And, um, I think 
in the podcast that we were recording when we came back, he asked me a few questions about what the experience was like of finishing it finally. And it's, I burst into tears spontaneously (laughs) and describing it (laughs) because it was so hard to stay true to the, the truth, you know, of what I wanted to share with people and not make it into something that other people expected it to be. And what I found out is that in my own health seeking and as a health journalist, so much of what um, passes for good advice or conventionally acceptable health and fitness advice is really all the same diet and exercise workout, you know, eat less, burn more kind of counsel. And it works against most people, I think, um, more than it helps. And at least that's been my observation. And the statistics on this are on my side, that most people who go on diets don't not only don't stay on them, but aren't helped by them. They, they lose weight, they immediately gain back, and often they you know injure themselves or their metabolism in the process. And I think the same thing is true. A lot of times people dive into over-aggressive exercise programs before their bodies are really ready for it, and they end up um, injuring themselves or just getting exhausted and finding that they don't enjoy exercise. They don't want to do it anymore. And so this book, I guess I really set out to give people an alternative way of approaching their health and fitness improvement efforts and really reframing them so that they start with the understanding that what's been keeping them unhealthy and unhappy or what has been holding them back from making the healthy changes they want to make is not some failure of willpower or, um, you know, moral fortitude on their part. It's that we're all living in the same unhealthy culture. And it's a culture that makes it massively more easy to be unhealthy and unhappy than it does healthy and happy. And I think that 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 context is really important and at the essence of my book. And if there's one, one thing that makes it very different than most books, it's this pretty consistent focus on remembering the context in which you are trying to make these changes. So I share a lot of science and statistical insights about how and why that is important, you know, in terms of the influences, unconscious and conscious, the incentives um, that are at work and the unhealthy default choices that are constantly surrounding you. So when you go to make a change in, say, your eating or your activity or your sleep or your social connection, doing it in a way that acknowledges the almost impossible environment that you're doing it in and giving yourself credit for that and learning from the obstacles that come your way rather than being defeated by them. It's, it's, we'll talk a little bit, I hope about the unhealthy default reality, but to me, it's really like, remember the context in which you are trying to make these changes, because if you don't, you're setting yourself up for failure. (laughs) I don't want anybody to do that. I totally see where you're coming from now. I mean, that is, yes, yeah. I just, I wrote down brilliant. (laughs) I wrote down brilliant because (laughs) for you to say, you know, the publisher wanted to be this way and this way, but you're so right. You are framing this in a way that feels so amazing. And I've read Experience Life magazine for many years and it, it, it has like that sort of theme about the, I think revolutionary and it's not, it's escaping me now, but being revolutionary healthy being you know what it is yeah. I'm losing it being healthy it's a revolutionary act yeah, yeah. No, that's it you got it yeah, it's, yeah. yeah. and so, being healthy is a revolutionary act that was the right. the tagline for the magazine for years yeah and so yes I, I was in Target uh, with my daughter and she said let's go look at the Christmas clearance section I'm like oh great let's do it and 
all the junk food that was on clearance and I'm sitting here trying to get you know my back on my healthy eating to feel good because I feel like garbage after since Thanksgiving and I'm looking yeah. at the target clearance aisle and it's like Christmas threw up you know <laughs> it's just yep. everywhere and it's <laughs> and and but the candy the cookies and my daughter's like I want a reindeer cookie and I'm thinking you know what yeah. shot what shot do we have to raise healthy human beings in this in this world, you know, it feels so difficult. So the fact that you're focusing your book on how we can do this and to remember that the odds are stacked against us, I think that is so brilliant. So I'm excited. I'm that made me so happy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you. And that's a really great example of how our environment is constantly triggering unhealthy desires and cravings. And the other part that a lot of people don't see is how that same environment is constantly wearing us down. Um, You know, all of the media, all of the attention that we have on all these digital devices and screens and, you know, most environments, there are two or three screens within site at any given time and multiple sounds coming across from various broadcasts or speaker systems or your own devices. And you're rushing and you're trying to accomplish more in a given day than you possibly can. And you're not really connecting with your loved ones in the ways that help to replenish you and you're not sleeping. So all of these things, the blue lights, the, you know, the madly overstimulating environment also wears us down and it depletes our cognitive capacity. It depletes our resilience and it leaves us kind of unconscious in an environment If you're unconscious, you're again even more vulnerable to not knowing why you suddenly had a crazy craving for French fries or a Cinnabon, except that you just walked past the smell in the mall or on the street. And now... And Cinnabon. I mean, you know. (laughs) Oh, I know. It's so cruel. (laughs) The worst. But these are really good... But it's real, like it is designed to do what it does. And that's, you know, we can laugh about, oh, the cinnamon and it reminds me of grandma. That smell is so appetizing. But it's been designed to appeal to our bodies and minds and to 2.5 million years of genetic evolution that our bodies are programmed to want the densest possible forms of of energetic value of calories, but sugars and salts and fats. And when you combine them, our poor, you know, essential nervous system is no match for that, even at its best. But when you combine that with the overwhelm and the depletion and the overstimulation, people are really at a very big disadvantage. And I talk about some funny um, research. (laughs) It's not funny. It's kind of scary, but some of the research that's been done on what they call ego depletion. Mm-hmm. Um, and this yeah. is the sense that you have being, you know, less capable or more worn down and not having as much willpower as you did say, you know, at the start of the day, most people have better a sense of control and willpower. And by the end of the day, most people are pretty worn out, but they've done research to show that this happens in in some pretty fun lab environments. So when they, for example, bring people in to a study environment, they'll have in one study like a bunch of chocolate chip cookies that are freshly baked out and that smell really good and they tell the people not to eat them. And they're like, hey, like they make something up, like, hey, those are for a different experiment so you can't eat them. (laughs) And then people are confronted with this chocolate chip cookie smell and then they put them in this uh, lab environment where they have them take some kind of a mental challenge, like do a math test or a sorting exercise. And what they show is based on the control group that hasn't been exposed to the warm, yummy chocolate chip smells, the people 
who have been do much less well on the stress test or the the, the cognitive test um, than the people who are not exposed to that smell. So just resisting the chocolate chip smell causes a kind of cognitive depletion or what's known as ego depletion. The, the rational minds, the egoic minds ability to make a decision and stick to it. But what's really interesting is that it also works the other way around. They've done other studies where they give people really complicated tests or math sorting or whatever, like a cognitive demand test, and then expose them to tempting foods. And sure enough, if you have enough mental stress, resisting attempting food becomes much more difficult. You're much less likely to be able to do it. But this is the circumstances, these are the circumstances that we're living in day in and day out in this culture. Huge amounts of temptation combined with huge amounts of chronic stress. And in that unrelenting combination, that environment, it's a miracle that we are make us, we make healthy decisions as often as we do, but that we beat ourselves up for the times that we think we fail. And that really only adds to the stress and that, that cycle of ego depletion. I call it the vicious cycle of the unhealthy default reality. <laughs> um, and it really is. It's a predictable recipe for disaster. Yes, yes. So like when I travel now, I bring my food, like all my meals, I pack them in containers and I take them. And this is for a wide variety of reasons. But a lot of it is because I got to the point where I would find myself actually angry in an airport <laughs> or, you yep. know, in a grocery store because I just couldn't find the simplest things that, I, that I'm not intolerant to or that did not yeah. have gluten. And just... I just wanted something, totally. you know, and I would, and so now people say, well, I don't want to take my food on trips. And I'm like, well, knock yourself out. But I do because it's, it's, it's unsafe out there, people. It's unsafe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it really is. And and it's, you know, what you've just described is a really good example of a healthy deviant uh, strategy, a coping strategy or a kind of self-defense strategy that allows you to maintain your own healthy self-preserving choices in the face of some pretty significant obstacles. And that demands time and energy and know-how on your part. And you learned, I suspect, through long experimentation that not doing it was more problematic than doing it. And that's why you do it, even though it is a pain in the butt. And it's a shame you have to do it. Um, but that's a great example of a healthy deviant skill. And it's interesting, like, I guess I am a sort of deviant in a way. <laughs> Yay, me. But, you know, I I have not been able to be a very intuitive eater. I've dealt with an eating issue my whole life, and, and I am four years sober, so I was a drinker. And so I've had a lot of issues with just overdoing yeah. life in general. And so for me, yeah. being a meal planner where I know what I eat every day down to the gram some people like to push that as that's unhealthy, you know, eating disorder, that it's, it's, you know, orthorexia in some way. And I'm like, no, this is what makes me healthy. This is where I can control. Yeah. And it, you know, it does have a control piece to it. But in a world where we can't control much, I don't think planning what I eat <laughs> is necessarily a bad thing to control, <laughs> you know? And so I get a lot from that. And I think, Wait a minute. If we if I can't control what I'm actually putting in my body, you know, what what do people want me to control? I don't understand. And so that is a way that I'm yeah. I'm a healthy deviant is I just try and control the little piece of the world I can. <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, and you know, that's, thank you for, for saying that and, and sharing that about yourself. I think it's really important for people to experiment until they find the strategies that work for them. For someone else, it, what you just described could be an unhealthy set of behaviors, right. but for you, they work. And the fact that they work and they give you the energy and vitality and clarity and confidence to do what you want to do with your life and put your attention where you want to put it, that's great. You know, it's like bright line eating for some people is super helpful. And for others, it's really dysfunctional. You kind of got to figure it out by trying it and seeing what happens, not just to your body, but also to your mind. Do you become obsessive or does it free you? You know, that's really what it comes down to. For a lot of people, it's like, oh, I I don't have to think about it anymore. I don't worry about it at all. That's exactly for other people. It's like planning is is freedom because I'm not, I'm not using the mental space of, Oh, how can I have this? Can I have this? Is this going to make me not feel, you know, so it, it is freedom. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the same thing is true of intuitive eating, you know, for certain people, that is a strategy that is very rewarding, works really well for them. And I think for particularly at a certain point in your cycle as a healthy eater, um, it can be easier to do that and have confidence. You know, you know what makes you sick, what doesn't, you know, what's a craving and what's not. But I think for a lot of people, when they just throw themselves into intuitive eating from a place of a pretty disordered set of eating behaviors and not really knowing what is in the food that they're eating, it's difficult for them to discern between a healthy craving or a kind of a swerve off of a normal eating pattern for the fun of it and the joy of it. And because whatever you need copper in your diet today, (laughs) or if it's really like something is getting to you and you're just, you know, in a reaction that's not so healthy for you or not sustainable for you over time. So, yeah, I mean, there's a, you know, it's interesting. I, like I said, there is no diet in this book and I've really tried hard to to have it be inclusive and, you know, whether you're vegan or paleo and a tightly regimented eater or a very freewheeling one, um, I think most of the counsel in there is, is universally helpful, but I do think that it's important to learn over time what works for you and, you know, your personal body mind based, not just on your personality, but your health status, you know, what works for you now might not work for you. If you're diagnosed with cancer, what works for you now might not work for you when you're 65 or when you have a baby or when you go to school, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, I think that that it's almost like we're going out into the wilderness and there's a series of circumstances we can't predict, and we're going to have to be flexible in how we approach them over the course of our lifetime and our changing circumstances. So it's great that you found something that's working well for you now. That's, you know, that's a victory. <laughs> you know, it does until I just don't do the thing. But that's what I come back to. You know, I when I go off into, you know, oh, I can just eat whatever, I realize that typically what is going on is is it's the target clearance aisle you know it, something like that has has changed my happy self defense i think is what you called it self defense strategy yeah. and i've allowed yeah. it's the external it's the external that i've let in and that's that's really interesting it's so great you almost a perfectly just nailed the three nonconformist competencies of healthy deviance in what I call in, in one sentence. So oh. the first thing you talked about was oh, you realized that's awareness. And I think amplified awareness, a higher than average level level of awareness is like the first competency of a healthy deviant. You start to notice and become aware of what is triggering you and what both inside you, like my mood today or outside 
beside me, like the Target clearance table <laughs> or the smell of a Cinnabon, um, or like everyone is having chicken wings and beers. I want to do, you know, like that's an, you being aware what's triggering and also what was working or not working for you. Like you said, you're intolerant to gluten, noticing that when you eat it, you get sick. That's a really important uh, competency. So that's one you mentioned. The other thing you mentioned was like um, knowing what you need to do to take care of yourself, to get back into the system or the approach that you know replenishes and works for you. For for a lot of people, um, they're so worn down and broken down chronically, it's been a long time since they've felt fully revitalized and replenished and repaired. But the second nonconformist competency of healthy DVMs, as I see it, is preemptive repair. So you get ahead of the damage that's done to you by virtue of living in an unhealthy culture. And when you notice that you're run down and depleted or reactive or overwhelmed, and that something is like you're starting to behave in unhealthy ways, you take some preemptive, proactive steps to get yourself back into a healthy place. And for a lot of people, that's about eating before you're ravenously hungry or drinking water before you're really dehydrated or lying down for a nap or taking a rest before you're totally exhausted. Um, and when you do that, you really do stay ahead of the crazy making stuff that most of us do when we are hungry, thirsty, tired, stressed out, you know, that's when we fall off whatever program has been working for us. And we just throw all caution to the wind <laughs> and we make ourselves totally ill. And then then we rest after yeah. we're sick. Once we're in the hospital or we've been diagnosed with an illness, um, like autoimmune disorders are like so on the rise because of this and people finally have to lie down, but it's only because they can't even stay standing anymore. And I don't want people to be able to get ahead of that damage. So anyway, the third one that you mentioned, which we're going to be talking more about, because this is what your whole podcast is about, is continuous growth and learning, understanding how you can develop your healthy living or what I call healthy deviant skills to be able to rise to the challenges that most of us are facing today. You just can't learn them all at once and they change from year to year. So it's a continuous learning process. Right. And and one of the things that's so wrong with all these other health books that, that they tried to get you to write is um, it, it takes this approach that we can just fix everything all at once. One, you know, number one, we're not broken, but the, the idea of fixing everything and and right. then it becomes so overwhelming and a simple example i always tell like the clients that i work with is life is a continuum and we need to quit looking at these like goals you know three months i'm going to be here like just live you <laughs> yeah. know because it goes up and down and as soon as we can become like more pliable <laughs> is a word i like um yeah just react I love that to, word to kind of just be and, and that's really a lot coming from me if you knew me five years ago um but mm. you know one example that just happened to me this morning i woke up you know new year's day i don't drink anymore but i did have some cake last night and i ate some bread and i know what that does to me I know. I mean, the experiment has been mm. proven for a long time, you know, but I thought well, <laughs> it's, it's fine, you know, it's fine. And so I woke up this morning and I went downstairs and my husband looked at me and he was cranky. I was like, why are you cranky? <laughs> and he's like, why are you cranky? And I thought, well, I know why I'm cranky because I'd, I had sugar. I had too much sugar last night. I know what it does to me. And he said, yeah, me too. And, and it was weird because I wasn't hung over, but it has the almost same mental drain on me as it used to when I would drink. Yeah. And 
so in that moment, I had a choice. Like we still had some food that, you know, I could eat that w- would not make me feel good. Or I could get right back on the food that I know makes me feel good. But it's weird that it's even a choice that we still battle with it, you know, yeah. but I had to be so yeah. aware, like Meredith, you don't feel good. You know, mm-hmm. for a fact that if you eat these next three meals or four meals, you will wake up tomorrow and feel like another human. And having yeah. that, that knowledge, just that's, I find for me at least is where I can create longer lasting change. I still don't have it perfect, but gosh, it it's, I feel empowered just talking to you right now because I know I'm going to eat what I'm going to eat when I go downstairs, which I didn't eat crap before talking to you because honestly, I would feel like I was lying (laughs) if I had eaten like the Target clearance (laughs) stuff before I talked to Pilar. I'd be like, oh my gosh, it's not even true. I'm a fraud, you know? So, um, Oh, I love that you could make me the assigned author of your own excellent judgment. I'll take the credit. Thank (laughs) you. But I... It's interesting what you've said. So two things I want to reflect on. One is, you know, you said I'm not hungover, but obviously the way you felt was, you know, there's a sugar hangover. I don't know. I'm assuming you weren't eating a gluten cake because you said you're gluten intolerant, but maybe you were, in which case you'd be doubly hungover from sugar and gluten. And I've been double whammied before by that combination. And it's terrible. I mean, and you know, you, I can look hungover, right? I get the puffy eyes and the dark circles. Um, I get that from drinking wine too, which I love. I still drink. I have Happily, um, I'm a more of a wine and beer drinker, only gluten-free beer, of course. But um, if I do too much, you know, I can see it the next day in my face. And sometimes I do it anyway because it's fun. But mostly what I've noticed is that 90% of the time I'd rather not feel that way. It's too high of a price. At the times when I am making that decision, it's very interesting. So last night was New Year's Eve, and that's a socially sanctioned, encouraged time for us to overindulge and to get, you know, have an altered state and party with people and say, what the heck, it's a holiday. And this is another example of how our society programs us to have these kinds of behaviors. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing. There's, I, I, Look, I love to have a great time. And sometimes like hanging out with people and doing crazy fun things is all that I want to do. And I'm willing to pay the price the next day or the next week. But noticing what it is that makes me want to do that, in this case, a socially sanctioned programmed event like the year end party of the year, whatever, or it's your birthday or it's Christmas or it's the holiday blah, blah party. It's the office special donut day. It's your kids (laughs) Halloween candy every week. In this culture, there is something or some things. Happy hour happens every day. And it was designed for stressed out people getting off of work to like take their depleted, ragged selves and drag them into a bar where they can semi-anesthetize themselves on alcoholic beverages and some kind of junk food. And it's not, I mean, I'm partially joking, but I'm really not because in truth, like Everywhere we go, there is some version of this happening to us all day long, all year round, and we're either resisting it or we're recovering from it. And all of that takes energy. So this is part of why the healthy deviant mindset is, like I said, understanding what you're up against and rather than being defeated by it, deciding to really embrace it like a foe, like a worthy foe. And you said something else like a word, I think, uh, pliable. You use the word pliable. I love that word. And I often talk about um, 
like meeting this foe of the unhealthy default reality, almost like you would a martial arts teacher, you know, who's like the Kung Fu guy that's going to like beat you to a bloody pulp while teaching (laughs) you how to do jujitsu. And they just keep knocking you down and you have to keep getting back up. And like, eventually you learn the martial art. And then it's like the teacher, when you can take the pebble from my hand, you know, or (laughs) kill Bill or something, it'll be time for you to go. Or, or, you know, taking a tango lesson from a really good tango teacher, it can be really intense and you can feel like you're losing or it's scary or you're off balance, but that's how you learn. And, you know, rather than seeing it as a fight or, you know, something that you're up against and as an enemy, I really look at the culture we're living in today as like, ah, it's a teacher. It's helping me to become more aware and it's inviting me to learn these skills of survival of the new era. Well, and the key to that that I've I've learned is the the inner voice in your head, how you learn, how you respond to what you just learned. Because when you when yeah. you have a moment where you eat what you know doesn't agree with you, and you wake up the next morning you feel like crap and the scales up or whatever, the the inner voice in your head has to be different in order to to make that change matter. Like you can't say you're a piece of crap. You did this again. You have no willpower. (laughs) You know, you can't say that you have to say, okay, facts are you ate this. You feel bad. Like, let's not do it again. Like the way the inner voice is so important, I think in this process. Oh, I completely agree. Yeah, because, you know, part of what the unhealthy default reality does is absolutely set you up to feel like it's you, your failure, your, first of all, it's your problem, right? It's, you know, your weak-willed thing, you're being stupid, blah, blah, blah. And like I said, it's really the evolutionary's mismatch of being in a culture where our genetic programming doesn't match our social reality and where all of the encouragements are unhealthy ones. But beyond that, you know, thinking that you're the only one who's struggling and that you're stupid and bad is really, again, part of that vicious cycle where you then get down on yourself and feel ashamed and where you begin to, um, you know, sense that there's no way out. And this is a dynamic that leads to what I call learned helplessness. Well, it's not just what I call it. It's what psychologists call it, where you try and you fail and you try and you fail to the point that you just start losing hope. And um, I want to turn that around for people because so it's in the book, I have two different graphs. One is uh, this sort of cycle of the unhealthy default reality, this vicious cycle. And the other is the cycle of a virtuous cycle of healthy deviance. And as we were talking about, it really begins with the amplified awareness of all of this. But then it leads to willingness rather than willpower. And that's another really important distinction. I think being willing to try again, being willing to experiment with some other approaches, being willing to be a little uncomfortable in the service of finding something out is much, much more useful than insisting on willpower and that you're just going to white knuckle your way through all kinds of misery and discomfort um, just because you got to prove that you're a good person. I mean, that that's really thankless. And the willingness to me, really, that's where the transformation in my own life began, was imagining that it might be possible for me to be a healthy person and also feel free and be happy (laughs) instead of, you know, 
I, I would try to go on these diets or stick to these like crazy workout schemes. And when I would drop off of them, I would just feel like more and more hopeless and more and more frustrated with myself and trying to do all of those th good things that I quote unquote should be doing while also holding down a challenging career and being there for my family and trying to accomplish my personal goals. As you say, in this, all in the same 24 hours, you know, <laughs> I, um, I got to this point where I was so frustrated that I stopped my foot on the wood floor of my house and broke my foot, oh, just no. cracked my bone. <laughs> and that to me was like, that's how much force of will, violent force of will I was directing against my own self. And that really scared me. It's really what led me to, you know, go, wow, if I could do this much damage to myself on an average day, just by being frustrated, what is that energy doing to me the rest of the time? And what am I capable of? You know, and I think that this is part of why people do drink and why they do resort to comfort food, or they do get addicted to things like, you know, gambling or sex or shopping is we're trying to anesthetize ourselves from a really painful place. And part of that pain comes from finding ourselves so wrong and inadequate in a society that would love nothing more than to convince us that we're inadequate because then it can sell us more stuff. So I really think that moving from awareness into willingness leads into a whole bunch of other things in a positive cycle that rather than taking you down into a cycle that takes you to like misery and learned helplessness, brings you up into a cycle of flow and discovery and like fascination. Like, huh, okay, what just happened there? What might I do differently next time? Okay, what were the triggers? What do I need to be successful now? What skill am I missing? Who could I get that from? Um, and so that's kind of been the road I've been on ever since is just figuring out how I can bust out of the systems that have yes. been busting me. Yeah, I always call it the shit show autopilot that we're just on this yeah. autopilot that's just a hot mess and, and we're moving forward and we don't even know we're on it. And so that awareness yeah. is is so, so very important. So you mentioned um, on the third, I, I didn't write it down, but that you wanted to talk about some of the tips that um, you might want to share with my audience that are from the book as far as what are some of the actions we can maybe take um, for, yeah. to be a healthy deviant. Absolutely. Well, I'm in my book, I talk about, um, I mentioned the three nonconformist competencies and for people that are interested in like want, they want to put some of those into action. I suggest three renegade rituals in the book. Um, and the basics of them are simple enough. I can describe them here. And then if people want to learn more, I can give you some podcasts and other free places that people can read and listen to them if they don't want to buy the book, which they certainly can. And that's all in there too. Buy the book, everyone. Um, buy the book. She doesn't want to say <laughs> that, but buy the book. <laughs> I'll do it I would you. love that people buy, buy the book, buy some for your friends. No, but truly, I, you know, I know that not everyone can afford to buy books or, you know, in the libraries with new books, you can always ask for the book at your library and they will generally order these books in. But sometimes there's a waiting list and I don't want anyone to have to wait to begin experimenting. Um, so the first renegade ritual is called the morning minutes. And I do this every day with, in some form, um, it's a base commitment of three minutes, no more. You can do more if you want, but you don't have to. And for three minutes after I wake up, before I look at my cell phone, before I turn on my computer, before I look at a newspaper or turn the news on, I light a candle 
and I spend three minutes doing something that I genuinely enjoy. That's like a relatively low key wake up thing. And that could be just sitting and looking out the window, could be petting my dog, might be playing my guitar. Sometimes I will stretch or do some yoga, just like, you know, one sound salutation or I will meditate for a few minutes. Sometimes I just look into the flame of the candle and kind of imagine what I want my day to go like. It could be anything. People read a little piece from a wisdom book or pick an oracle card if you have like an animal card or a wisdom card. But the idea is that you take these first three minutes for yourself. A couple of really interesting things happen. One is you'll run up against your own resistance. You're used to looking at your phone. You're used to flipping on the, the radio or a podcast. Like if you are used to doing these pattern behaviors, not doing them is surprisingly challenging. And that's very educational because it tells you that even taking three minutes for yourself to consciously do something that's really self-caring and self-building, how difficult that is. Imagine how hard it is for you to go change everything about your eating program and your activity. (laughs) This is fun and easy and you're still resisting doing it. The other really important thing about the morning minutes um, is that it actually takes advantage of a very special brainwave state known as the theta state. Many of us have heard about like beta waves or delta waves. Delta is when you're sleeping. Beta activity in your brain is when you're awake and doing stuff and thinking, you know, go do it thoughts. But theta is the space between sleeping and waking. And it's a very vulnerable time for your brain. It's also a very creative time. You have a lot of access to your subconscious mind. You're great at doing like visualizations and intention setting. But your brain is also very vulnerable to having outside messages implanted in your brain at this time. So suggestible or impressionable, which means when you flip on the news or open your social media, the entire world's agenda comes at you and you're suddenly hit with bad news and social media, like likes, who likes me? Who doesn't like me? What happened? Who's cuter than me? No, I need this product now. Okay. And, you know, or people are suffering and dying in some place uh, around the globe that I can't do anything about, but it still raises my adrenaline and cortisol and puts me into fight or flight mode. So when you do this morning minutes practice, you get three minutes to kind of come to waking and be your own pilot rather than having the autopilot of the unhealthy default reality hit you. And that little moment of autonomy and agency is sometimes all it takes to realize that you'd like to do more of your life from that conscious state. Um, So the other two renegade rituals are kind of similar and that they're about checking in with yourself at various points in the day, taking breaks. Those are the ultradian rhythm breaks, which I recommend doing a few of a day. Those are just really simple cycles of energy and fatigue that our bodies go through every day. And we fight them. We, 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 again, our programming in our society is that you get up in the morning and you go, 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 go until you fall asleep at night. But our bodies that were never programmed to work that way. They all go through these cycles of oscillating energy. You're up and then you're down and then you're up. And typically you have about an hour and a half of productive time before you need about 20 minutes of rest. And that can just be a low case, low key switch of gears, or you can like sit down, close your eyes, take a few deep breaths, go outside. And I write about this in the book at some length. Um, if people want to know more about that one, that renegade ritual, I always suggest listening to um, the living experiment podcast episode called pause. And I just posted, Posted that up on my Facebook group page today, the Healthy Deviant Facebook group. Um, if people want to listen to it, or they can find it in the archive at livingexperiment.com. But that explains in some detail how to do an ultradian rhythm break. 
And then the third one is a nighttime wind down practice, which is really just kind of doing the same thing of taking advantage of lowering your energy level, lowering the lights in your house, lowering the volume on all the things going around you so that you can begin to ease into a nice sleep ready state. And Meredith, here's a fun little experiment you can run tonight if you'd like. Part of my evening wind down practice is what I call evening ablutions. And ablutions is spelled A-B-L, ablutions. And it's an old-fashioned word for like self-anointing in a ritual way. So we all brush our teeth, hopefully, and we all wash our faces, hopefully, before we <laughs> go to, to bed. to my 12-year-old boy. I don't know. <laughs> not. See if you might be interested in this. But I started experimenting with doing those things I do anyway before I go to bed more slowly and with lower light. So I sometimes bring a candle actually into the bathroom, but you can just lower the lights in the bathroom if that's possible or try to use a low key lamp rather than the bright overheads or fluorescence. And rather than rushing through those toilet, toilet, toilet activities, I just do them more slowly and with self-care. So if I'm going to put lotion on, I put it on while I'm looking at myself kindly and I put it on like I care about myself. When I'm brushing my teeth, I take real care to brush my teeth thoroughly and carefully. If you use a Sonicare, actually using the quad pacer on the darn Sonicare is astonishingly effective. <laughs> You're supposed to be holding that toothbrush in the same place for five seconds at a time. My dental hygienist told me that and I almost fell over. <laughs> You're not supposed to be moving it around like some right. sort of crazy like rocket. But anyway, when you do these, um, these daily routines in a way that are slow and you slow your breathing, you slow your heart rate, it's amazing how how much more easily I can fall asleep, even with a few minutes of that kind of activity. Give it a try and let me know what you think. Oh, I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much for this, Pilar. Um, this podcast is called The Same 24 Hours, as we've, we've talked about. And I feel like this whole episode was about amazing things you do to contribute to your greatest health and happiness and success. But I like to ask my guest, what is one particular habit or ritual that you can really point to that you do in your 24 hours that, that helps you make the most of it? But you gave me so many. Yeah. But if there's another one. <laughs> Well, the version of it that I practice, you know, I do all of those, but the ultradian rhythm break practice that is built most heavily into my day, I walk my dog three times a day, but even if I didn't have my dog, I would now walk myself out to the mailbox and back three times a day. I live in a kind of a rural environment and I, I've got about a one mile walk that I do. Um, and when I take a mid morning break to do that, do it after lunch and then do it again in the mid afternoon, I get all of my best ideas on those walks. Mm -hmm. My body stays fit. I think almost entirely because of those walks, because when I was writing my book, I didn't work out at all. And I really don't think I lost my much fitness because I was just remaining active and taking care of myself and walking is a wonderful, um, you know, just kind of a whole body exercise. But I think taking those breaks mid morning, mid afternoon, and really taking a break for lunch massively increases my productivity and my creativity while keeping my stress level down and keeping my health really good. That would be my suggestion. Well, thank you so much. This was exciting. And we will look for your new book, The Healthy, Healthy Deviant, and get on with our healthy deviants and raging against the <laughs> clearance aisle. <laughs> right on. And the autopilot. Yeah. And for folks who are interested... There's a fun little five-day challenge I put together for the new year that just started, and people can still get in on it if they want to. Um, they can find it at the Healthy Deviant Facebook group. That's a private group, but anybody can join. Um, or check out my social 
feeds to try to connect with uh, the challenge invite. I'd love to have people join. I'm doing a live stream each day, but also sending folks these kinds of resources via email. And of course, you know, you can find out more about my book at my website too, which is livingexperiment.com. Oh, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's a Living Experiment podcast. podcast. Don't forget you can the go podcast there. Too, the, podcast. the book site is healthydeviant.com. Well, thank you so much and happy new year. Thank you so much, Mira. That was really fun talking with you. Happy new year to you too. Thank you for joining me on this episode of The Same 24 Hours. Remember to rate, review, and share this podcast. It really matters. I appreciate it. See you next time.